0: morning, everybody. As I said before, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, you guys have got me worked up. I'm losing my voice already, so <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll try to keep going. We are starting a brand new series called Hopes and Fears, and as we go through this series, I'll tell you more and more of what it's about and where it came from, but let me just give you a little teaser of what it's all about. You just heard that song called, "O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. It's a song that was written in the 1860s by a man named Philip Brooks, and in it, there's a, a line that has stood out to me for years. It goes like this, and in the dark streets shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's talking about Jesus. It's saying that in Jesus, every single one of our hopes and fears, everything about us and the things that we are scared of and fearful over find resolution in Jesus. Now, I realize that For some, it would be really easy to go, okay, really? Are you serious, Aaron? You think that my real fears are met in Jesus? And that's a good question. So over the next three weeks, we're going to take the time to look at our very real fears, fears about our past, fears about our present, fears about our future, and see what Jesus has to say what Christmas has to say, about each one of those different phases of our life. And this week, we're actually going to take the time to look at our fears about our past. That sounds great, doesn't it? (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, great, here we go. We're going to talk about my past. I realize that for some of us, our past is heavy and hard and full of fear, full of darkness and about the last thing you want is somebody dredging up your past. About the last thing you want is somebody asking questions about your past. In fact, maybe you would say, my biggest fear is that if somebody walked up to me and said, I know about you. I get that. I, I think that's probably true for just about every single one of us. But here's the reality and the idea that we're going to talk about throughout the next couple of weeks. It's this it's the idea that the birth of Jesus answers our fears with hope. I believe that if you'll stick with us over these next couple of weeks, you will find hope. See, the Christmas story. Is a little different than it often gets told. We we often talk about you know a a, a baby born in a manger, and we make it very um, romantic. You know, we spruce it up. We we act as if it's 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 much more beautiful than it probably really was. And Matthew tells us, uh, one of the authors of the New Testament, in fact, the first author in the New Testament tells us the story of Jesus, and he tells us about some of the people in Jesus' family line, and in it we find out that it's not exactly the kind of family tree that you would want to be a part of. Maybe you can identify with that. It's not exactly the the family tree that you go, oh, wow, that's filled with some amazing people. In fact, here's what I think we find when we look at the the, the genealogy or the story of the birth of Jesus, we find that the Christmas story is actually filled with some people with a very shady, shady past. In fact, if we started telling their stories, you might blush. And here's the reality, that's what we're going to do today. I want to walk you through some of the stories of the people that are found in Jesus' genealogy because the reality is that we're not much different. I'm not much different. And I think that Matthew was up to something when he included some of these people in the genealogy of Jesus. Like honestly, if I was writing a genealogy, can you identify with me? If you were telling like your story, you know, I came from so and so and so and so and so and so, there might be a few people that you just kind of quietly left off the genealogy. You know, you got the weird uncle that was in jail longer than he wasn't right? You you understand what I'm saying. And when Matthew told this story, he didn't leave those people out. In fact, he purposefully put them in there for us to take a look at. And it's just made me wonder why. I want to highlight for you five people today that are in the story of Jesus that frankly, as far as genealogies go, shouldn't have been there. But for some reason, Matthew put them in. These five people are actually people in a category of human beings that were never, ever included in ancient genealogies. They were never, they were never included. They couldn't own land. They couldn't couldn't—you know vote as if voting was a thing. They didn't have that ability. They couldn't really take care of themselves, per se, not that they weren't able, but the way culture was set up, they couldn't do it. These five people that I'm talking about are women, five women that incredibly show up in the genealogy of Jesus in a time when a genealogy would never include women, but for some reason Matthew does it. And these women are, are honestly very peculiar in their stories. Now, I have to move quickly to be able to get through it, otherwise we'll be here longer than you want to listen to me. So I want, I want to show you the stories of these five women because I think it tells us something about what Christmas is all about. Let's start in Matthew chapter 1. Let me show you the first couple of verses here. This is the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, the family tree of Jesus. Now, Matthew describes him as the Messiah. Matthew is writing as if Jesus really is the one who came to deliver people from their sins. So, this is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Those are very important terms. If you were a Jewish person, and Matthew was writing to Jewish people. David was the the great king who God made a promise to David and said, you will always have a king on the throne. Okay, Our ears should perk up when he says that Jesus is the son of David. Abraham was like the beginning of the whole nation of Israel. And God made promises of land and seed and blessing to Abraham. So your ears should perk up when you hear Abraham. Something special is going on. Verse 2, it goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Then in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, first and foremost, this is the first woman listed. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, this is not the Tamar that we were talking about during David's time. This is a different Tamar. And if you've never heard her story, her story is hard to read. It's heavy. I'm going to give you a piece of it, okay? Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. And Judah's Judah had three sons. She married his oldest son. His oldest son was a wicked man, and he died. Now, in that culture, they had a thing that we would we today call leveret marriage, which is hard for us to understand. We are in a Western civilization culture. This was an Eastern civilization culture, very different. It's not for us to judge those differences, but the reality is in that culture, to keep things within the clan or the family and to make sure that they took care of each other, they did leveret marriage, where if a father had multiple sons, the oldest son died, his that wife would then become married to the next son to take care of her and to provide for her and to raise children through her. So that's exactly what happened to Tamar. She ended up now married to the second son, Onan. Onan was a wicked man as well. I won't tell you all of his story. You can read about it in Genesis 38 for yourself. He was a wicked man. Onan dies. Judah is starting to figure out, uh uh-oh, something's going on. He had a third son. His name was Shelah. And he was scared that he would lose his third son, so he refused to give Tamar to Shelah. And he said to her, you go home, stay with your father. And in the ancient culture, there was nothing more humiliating than for a woman to be told, go home to your father's family. Nothing more destructive. You want to talk about like a a, a scarlet letter? This said she wasn't good enough. She was humiliated. So she went home. She waited and waited. Because Judah said, when Sheila gets old enough, I'll give him to you. You will be married to him. And this will all be worked out. She waited and waited. And Sheila was very much so old enough. And Judah still refused. So Tamar decided to take things into her own hands. Look at what she did. In... Genesis chapter 38 verses 13 and 14 this is what we read when Tamar was told your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep she took off her widow's clothes she covered herself with a veil to disguise herself it goes on and then she sat down at the entrance to Enam for she saw that though Selah had now grown up she had not been given to him as his wife and so what did she do? So she's sitting at this town and then Judah comes. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. That was a sign of that's what she was. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. This is a wicked thing that this man is doing. You're going to find very soon that Judah was a hypocrite. So he did. The story tells us that that. That Tamar negotiates with him and says, hey, what will you give me? for this? He says, I'll, I'll give you one of my, my sheep. And she says, okay, what will you give me as a promise? Because your sheep isn't ready yet. What will you give me as a promise? And he gives to her a few of his things, a signet ring and, and uh, another uh, trinket that was his that, that proved that it belonged to him, a staff. He slept with her. And the text tells us that she became pregnant. In verse 24, it says this, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Now, knowing what Judah did, you would think that this would be a man of mercy, and yet it is not. Verse 24 goes on, and it says, Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. You understand the culture that we're dealing with here. Verse 25, verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And of course, the reality is that they were his. Judah says, she has been more righteous than me. He repented. He took her in and took care of her. And the text tells us she got pregnant and she was pregnant with twins. The two boys that were named earlier. You want to talk about something that is hard. Something that's part of a shady past. Tamar stopped trusting God, and she took things into her own hands. She came to this place where she said, you know what? I can't wait on God anymore. I can't wait on Judah. She stopped trusting God, and she took it all into her own hands. I wonder how many times we've done that. That there's stuff in our lives where we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and praying and waiting and and, and it just hasn't come about and we stopped trusting God and we decided that's it. I'm going to do something myself and now because of it, there's something in our past that we go, man, I hope they don't ever bring that up. I hope nobody knows. I can identify with that. Matthew keeps going in the genealogy and he tells us about another woman. Now, I do want to preface this by saying, do not miss the fact that honestly the men in this story, the men, many of the men accounted in Jesus' genealogy are worse than these women, Judah included. But for some reason, Matthew does something that nobody else in the ancient world did. He kept these women in the genealogy. He goes on in verse 4. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Then he goes on in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. A couple of things to point out here. There's two women listed in this story. A woman named Rahab and a woman named Ruth. Now, if you're not familiar with these two women, that's fine. There's something very unique about both these women. The first being Rahab. You see, Rahab is described many other times throughout the Bible, but each time she's described in the Bible, it uses a fuller term. It describes her not just as Rahab, it describes her like this. Rahab the blank. She was known for something. Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab was apparently a prostitute in the town of Jericho. Now, there were two different types of prostitutes in the ancient world. There were temple prostitutes who were often were, who were always absolved of their guilt for that type of involvement that type of world because they were supposedly or quote unquote doing it out of religious duty and then there were prostitutes who were doing it for money these women who were or men as well who were prostitutes would usually have their homes turned into hotels or motels and people would know that they could go and visit there they they knew what was going on, Rahab was apparently the second in the town of Jericho. Rahab became a well-known woman in the story of the nation of Israel because when Israel was spying out the land, they sent in spies, and, and some of them made it into Jericho, and Rahab took and hid those men because she knew that God was doing something through the nation of Israel, and so God protected Rahab and her family, and she became a part of the nation of Israel. I mean, God did something incredible, but each time she is described outside of Matthew chapter 1. She is described as Rahab, the prostitute. She is described like that. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Even in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. James chapter 2 and verse 5, the half-brother of Jesus writes this, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and she sent them off in a different direction? Here's my point. For some reason, Matthew includes this woman, Rahab, who had a very terribly sinful past. And she's just described like that. And the reality is, I, I realize that for some of us, we, when we're honest with ourselves, and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, man, my past, I am so ashamed of it. I don't want anyone to know. And if I was honest, my past haunts me. I'm scared that he's going to find out, she's going to find out. I'm scared that if anybody knew, they wouldn't want to be my friend. And I, like, I get that. And it's heavy The other woman that was listed All the way back in Matthew Was a woman named Ruth And here's the thing about Ruth R- Rahab was a terribly sinful uh, A woman with a terrible, terribly sinful path. Tam- past Tamar was, was a woman who, who stopped trusting God And made, made a, a, a sinful choice Ruth was a woman Who was just from the wrong side Of the tracks Ruth was born into the wrong family See, the story of Ruth in in the Old Testament tells us about an Israelite family who moves to Moab and and their two sons end up marrying Moabite women. Ruth was one of those women. The father and then the two sons both die and Ruth follows her mother-in-law back to the nation of Israel, but she was still a Moabitess, which means that her, her family lineage still went with her. The book of Ruth is an incredible story. It tells the story of how Boaz met Ruth, how they fell in love, and he became what the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer for her. That's, that's back to that leveret marriage idea that we talked about earlier. But here's the thing about Ruth. See, the Moabites were a people who lived across the Jordan River from the nation of Israel and they found their beginning in a terrible story. Man, you can't read the Bible and go, okay, this this is fairy tales, okay? It is filled with like, Crazy stories. It's a story of Lot and Lot fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah and, and ending up in the mountains and Lot's wife died in the process and, and, and his daughters thought their husbands were now dead and his daughters thought they were you know without any hope of ever having children so what did they do? They got their father drunk and impregnated themselves by their father. And out of that, sons were born who became the beginning of the nation of Moab the Moabites were the direct result of an incestuous relationship this is this is not your average christmas story okay See, the Moabites were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And the reality is that if a Jewish person reads this genealogy and they heard the story of Ruth and they knew that that this is a Moabite woman, that would have been an embarrassing disgrace to think that she was in your family line. And for some of you, you're embarrassed by the facts about your family family. Not even things in your control. Not even things that you did, but things that your family did that you can't do anything about. And now, when you walk down the street, people are like, Shh, that's so-and-so's daughter. Did you know that, uh, just as an illustration, okay? Did you know that Osama Bin Laden has children? He has actually a quite famous daughter. Imagine if you knew her. You saw her walking down the street. That's Osama's daughter. That's what was going on with Ruth. These men weren't terrorists. But they came from a line that was filled with incest. And for some reason, They're in the lineage of Jesus. It's hard to figure out. There's two more. Let me point them out to you. Back to verse 6. We heard about Jesse, and Jesse had sons. Verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's not even named. Solomon's mother is not even named. Do you know her name? It's Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a woman who David, when he was staying home and not doing what he was supposed to be doing, he lusted after her and invited her into an adulterous relationship. Now here's the thing. This story is tough to read too, but... I have to acknowledge there's some sort of power imbalance, okay? There's some sort of, you know, David's the king, Bathsheba's not, but David invites her in. 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, I don't know what all happened, and I don't know if she was forced, but the text doesn't tell us that she was forced, which tells me, and I'm not placing blame, I'm just simply saying, yes, there's a huge, incredible power imbalance, but, but she made a choice. And she's included in the genealogy. She made one life altering choice. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. See, Bathsheba made one sinful life altering choice. And I think that's probably true for some of us. You made a choice many years ago. You've been carrying it with you all of these years. Maybe the choice is growing up in front of your eyes. And it communicates to you quite possibly that if people really knew, or if they knew everything, that certainly people couldn't love you, not to mention God. The genealogy goes on; it tells us a good number of other people. There's 14 from Abraham to David, you know, uh, uh, you know, and then two other sets of 14 that take place in here, in verse. 15, 16 of Matthew chapter 1, it says this. I'm going to skip over a number of them and get you towards the end. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now here's the thing. To our knowledge, Mary didn't do anything terribly sinful. Mary's one of the only people people in all of the scripture that we don't have anything accounted that she did wrong. I'm not saying she was perfect because she wasn't. She was sinful just like you and me. But she's one of the only people in scripture that we're not told her and Joseph we're not told of their sin. But what we do know is that Mary got pregnant out of wedlock, and everybody would have thought she had a terrible reputation. That culture, not quite like our culture in the 21st century Western civilization, you get pregnant out of wedlock, you are shunned for life. She's expecting Joseph was going to dismiss her quietly, Verse 9, uh, the, the, you know, I, I get the, the, the text goes on in, in, in verse 18. Let me, let me just read this to you, okay? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Here's the point. Mary had a bad reputation. And if you don't believe me, I want you to hear some of what the Israelites said to Jesus when he was an adult. They said this to him in John chapter 8. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. Essentially, arguing that Jesus was. We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. What's the point? You got Tamar, who stopped trusting God, took matters into her own hands. You've got Rahab, who had a a terribly sinful lifestyle. You have Ruth, who was from the wrong family. You have Bathsheba, who made one sinful, life-altering choice. And you have Mary, who had a bad reputation. Real or not, that was her reputation. That as she walked around, people were whispering, and they knew all about her. That's what was believed about her. What is going on? Because Matthew seems to be doing something unique. He seems to be doing something that makes us go, why in the world is he including these women? And thankfully, Matthew gives us insight into it a little bit later. He does this. He explains it through the person of Jesus. He explains why he's including these women. See, later in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11 Jesus says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The Son of Man came to identify with people with a past. And our fear is that our past will haunt us. But Jesus says, I'm here to meet with people with a past. That's the idea of Christmas. In Matthew chapter 9, he says this. He says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. See, I tend to think that because of my past, people couldn't and certainly God wouldn't love me. But the reality is, Jesus brings the opposite message. I have come to bring mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, the message of Christmas and the message that Matthew is giving to us is a message of grace and mercy. Those two terms are terms we use still today, but we often don't understand them. Grace means God giving us something that we don't deserve. It's him giving us something that we don't deserve, and forgiveness is something that I do not deserve. Forgiveness from my past And the times I've taken it into my own hands, I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. In my past, I'm afraid. Man, I'd hate to think of what I deserve because of my past. Even later in the New Testament, the half-brother of Jesus says it like this. James, he says this. In verse 13 of chapter 2. If we can bring that up. James chapter 2 and verse 13 says. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But this is the line that I love. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The message of Christmas. Is a message of mercy. See. Here's the truth about Christmas, and if you don't take notes on anything else, I hope you'll latch onto this. Christmas reminds us that the sins of our past can find forgiveness because of God's mercy. I don't, I don't know if you identify with Tamar or with Rahab or with Ruth or with, with Bathsheba or with Mary. I don't know what it would be for you, but the reality is this. The, the, the entirety of Christianity is based on the idea that Jesus came and humbled himself and became a man to provide forgiveness for sinners like Tamar, for sinners like Rahab, for messed up people like Ruth, for messed up people like Bathsheba, and for people with a bad reputation like Mary. That's why Matthew includes them. So that we would look at it and go, man, I can be a part of the family of God too through God's mercy, and through God's grace. So what do you do when your past haunts you? What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you go, man, I hope they never find out, or I can't go in there and be with those people because if they knew the truth about me, or if they find out, that's it, I'm gone, I'm never coming back. What do we do? Because so often we let our past define us, but I'm telling you, your past does not have to define you because of Jesus. Here's what I want to urge you to do with me here today. On your seat when you walked in, there were two cards. If you would just take those out. I'm going to do the same. And there's one for you to keep, and there's one for you that I want you to get rid of today. The first one says, "My past." and I wonder if you would join me. In fact, I'm going to step down here and just get a, a pen for a minute. And I wonder if you would join with me and write on the back. What is it in your past that haunts you? You don't have to be descriptive, and these are going to go away. They're going to get torn up, so nobody's going to see if you think we can identify your handwriting, (laughs) okay? What is it about your past that haunts you? Would you join me and take just a minute and write on that? See, here's what I want you to know. When your past haunts you, here's what we do. We need to remember these three ideas real quick. Number one, your past doesn't define you. Jesus does. What you did doesn't define you. Amen. Jesus does. Number two, your family doesn't define you. Jesus does. Number three, okay, your reputation does doesn't define you. Jesus does. And so here's what I want to urge you to do. I'm going to give you, I'm going to close us in prayer here in just a minute. I'm going to give you another minute to write on these. But then when the band comes and leads us in singing, I want to invite you. The lights will be down. Nobody has to see. We have these trash cans up front for a reason because I want to invite you to take these when you're ready and while we're singing nobody has to be looking, come up use one of these trash cans rip it in half and throw it in the trash and then I want you to take the second one about your future which gives you promises about who you are in Jesus and I want you to remember this I'm going to do it I hope you'll join me Christmas reminds us, it brings us hope, because it reminds us that there is forgiveness because of the mercy of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus, and that he came and he identified with people like me. He identified with people who have a past like I do. He identified with people who need forgiveness like I do. God, I pray that you would help us to live in what is true now because of Jesus. That we would look at this Christmas story, this genealogy, and realize that the whole idea is not our performance, it's Jesus's. He brought mercy. He brought grace. I pray this in Jesus' name.